Hi, I'm DW from Houston. Hi, I'm Kristen from San Francisco. Hi, I'm Graham from Vancouver, Canada. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Yes. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the show today is Nick Offerman. Nick grew up in the middle of Illinois, and I grew up in the inner city of San Francisco, so I had to ask him to clarify a few things. What's a hay rack ride? Well, um, you have a uh, basically an enormous wooden platform on wheels. That's your hay rack. And Grandpa hooks up the tractor to the hay rack, and you can throw a few bales of hay on for furniture, and everybody climbs on, and you just tool around the farm taking in the breeze, you see how the crops are doing, maybe you see what the neighbors are getting up to. Um, that's a hay rack ride, and we, we would engage in song. What songs would you sing? Uh, um, rudimentary, like, children road trip songs. Uh, my uh, my Uncle Dan would sing Danny Boy, um, but, but I honestly, I, I can't remember exactly. It was... The wheels on the bus go round and round, or bingo. The the sure B I N G O. Yes, the the famous uh, bingo was his name. O. Um, <laughs> it was. It's bullseye. Coming up, my interview with actor Nick Offerman. He plays Ron Swanson on Parks and Recreation, one of the most beloved characters on TV. Known for his love of meat, his hatred of big government, and his healthy mustache. Which, it turns out, can be as much a burden as a blessing. People spot this mustache from a quarter mile away, and they don't seem to care much about me behind it. Then I talk to a few of the members of the sketch comedy group, The Birthday Boys. Like a lot of comics, they don't start with what bothers them about the world. In fact, quite the opposite. Yeah, I think a lot of the time we just start with something that we actually love, whether it's documentary or sitcom or whatever, and then we just imagine what if uh, seven morons were doing that thing. Plus, Brandon Bird talks about the day he became an artist. The folks from NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour tell you about a couple of their favorite new things, and I talk about why it's worth following Michael Palin around the world. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. Ron Swanson might be the most beloved character on television today. He's a supporting character at best on NBC's Parks and Recreation, but he's also inspired a cult of personality. Long hairs, crew cuts, tight pants, and suits alike. Love Ron's passion for small government, large meat, and woodworking. Here's Ron Swanson checking into the hospital. I'm just going to double-check your form here. Ron, you redacted all the information. I answered some of them. For date of birth, you wrote springtime. Which is true. Everything you write down is confidential. We need you to give real answers. Fine. How many drinks of alcohol do you consume a week? One. That's it? One drink? One shelf. Do you exercise? Yes. Love making and woodworking. Do you have any history of mental illness in your family? I have an uncle who does yoga. Allergies? Cowardice and weak-willed men. And hazelnuts. Sexual history? Epic and private. Okay. My guest Nick Offerman plays Swanson and lends a few personal quirks to the character. Woodworking's a passion of Offerman's too, but it's hard to picture Swanson in the Steppenwolf Theater or 
pulling rips from a giant zombie bong, both of which Offerman describes in his new book, Paddle Your Own Canoe, which is half memoir, half advice. Um, Nick Offerman, it is really great to have you on Bullseye. I'm so, so happy to get to talk to you. Well, thank you. You've started off with a, a generous helping of big talk, which I appreciate. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's public radio. We like to start you off hot. <laughs> so you're wearing a mustache at the moment, which is Ron Swanson's signature facial hair. I've also seen you um, with a pretty big beard in real life, and I've seen you completely clean-shaven in real life. Um I assume that you're in production for Parks and Recreation right now, given what time of year it is. Um, does wearing the mustache ever feel like a burden? Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, throughout my career, which is, you know, 20 or some odd years of professional work now, as a character actor, having the blessing of good hair and, and whiskers, uh, I've often really enjoyed changing it up, uh, trying to use every iteration that I can conceive of. Um, I've done Mr. T twice, <laughs> one in uh, brunette and one in platinum white. Um, and I never dreamed that uh, I would sort of become trapped in one, you know, look. But uh, but Ron's <laughs> mustache uh, has become, thankfully, uh, such a popular item that it does feel like I, I can no longer safely go to the grocery store um because people spot this mustache from a quarter mile away and they don't seem to care much about me behind it they just want to they want to touch the mustache has it ever been discussed installing a prosthetic or i mean i can see it's right right in front of me i mean it's a it's a beautiful mustache thank you um but uh just for convenience sake it has been discussed uh you know if it ever gets to be too much I could shave it off. We could use a really good prosthetic. Uh, for that matter, I could also shave my head and, and wear a wig on the show. But, I, you know, whenever I can in life as well as my craft, I, I try to do things as authentically as possible. And so if I can, if I can have my real whiskers, I, I prefer that. And it looks, you know, I, I can't imagine... Uh, Hopefully we have three to five years left of my show, which is a big wish. Uh, I, I think I can I can last it out. I, I want to talk to you a, a little bit about your childhood. You grew up in a rural area that now I guess is an exurban area outside of Chicago, like an hour from Chicago. Maybe you could describe the town that you grew up in. Well, it's called the Village of Manuka. Um, growing up there, it, it was uh, very conservative and, and white. Um, uh, it felt a lot, lot like the town of Mayberry that I saw on TV. It was very safe. You know, we would ride our bicycles 20 miles uh, at the drop of a hat with no thought towards being abducted or anything like that. Uh, we'd, we'd readily go play by the creek or we'd just set off into the woods. So it was a wonderfully idyllic time uh and and uh it was very simple you know there there wasn't a lot to do the some of the more wealthy households in town in the 80s began to get things like cable um or these video cassette recorders upon which they could purportedly play cassettes of cinema films from the theater still can't wrap my head completely around it i mean i grew up in the inner city 
I have no conception of this. Um, what do what does children do? <laughs> It's it's a good question. I mean, uh, you have to make your own fun uh, a lot. Of course, there's sports, um, and there there are things like fishing, which uh, my family very much indulged in in both of those activities. We play a lot of cards, um, and we have a good time. I mean, we we watched the four TV channels that we received through our antenna. Uh, but we also we played games. We played charades and uh, we played board games. Um, my my dad and I would uh, would make things together. I, I, when I was a kid, I was um, you know growing up in the city. There were things that were dangerous, like you know uh, junkies and gang members and that kind of thing. Um, you know, just classic. Uh, you know, after school special type stuff. Is this New York City? This is San Francisco. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, I feel like there is this whole other class of things that are dangerous to children um, that is rural, like threshers. Things sure. that like cut fingers off of people a lot. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of machinery around that will consume your the flesh of your body. Um, <laughs> and we're... We're taught. I mean, you know, a, a kid can get into mortal trouble <laughs> at anywhere, <laughs> whether it's in the country or the city. But uh, at a very young age, you're taught to respect the machinery. You know, um, usually with a swat on the bottom, don't go near that. Uh, and I remember hearing stories at a very young age of this is an auger. It's a long steel tube inside of which there's a corkscrew spinning. And it's used to transport grain from the ground up to the top of the silo. If your sleeve gets caught in there, it will suck your arm in and, you know, tear it to shreds. I get the impression from reading your book that, you know, I think a a lot of uh, artistic people who come on this show and grew up in a small place, like maybe they appreciate it, but a huge part of their identity was – this is a place for uh, people who are happy to be in this place and be like everyone else and I'm different and I'm going to get out of here and go to wherever it is that people are different. And in your book, you describe thinking of yourself as being different, but you don't seem restive to leave. Hmm. Well, I th- that's, that's an astute observation. I... I uh, certainly – I think I was of two minds. I mean I, I definitely was aware of my strangeness uh, and and that I had an affection for that side of myself while at the same time my family was so solid and, and the, the, the values that they imparted uh, upon me growing up were so wholesome that I think I – you know, I was kind of, I was, I was kind of riding. I was kind of remaining on the fence until somebody was going to force me to make a decision and, and take a side. And so, while I was weird and screwing around and, and kind of um, cutting up with my cousin and my friends, at the same time, I was making sure that I was getting good grades and and you know being a leader in certain ways because I had been taught that that was the way to succeed. Um, and I suppose, you know, subconsciously 
I was probably hoping that I would build a solid resume with which I could then within which I could succeed as a weirdo. Like, like maybe I would get elected to office and then be like, but really I'm a crazy clown. (laughs) I tricked you all. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Nick Offerman. He plays a mustachioed administrator on the NBC sitcom Parks and Recreation. He grew up in Illinois and spent the 90s working in Chicago's theater scene. So when did you realize that um, being an artist was even on the table? I mean, you know, you, you grew up in, this, in, a, in a farm town with a dad who was a school teacher and... Um, you know, where maybe maybe artist meant guy that teaches band class. Exactly. That's It's a very salient question because, I mean, as a junior in high school, that was the year that your guidance counselor and um, it was the year that the system had primed you to say, okay, you've made it this far. You, you're getting Caesar better, which means you can try and go to college. Here's what you can qualify for, you know. So what do you want to do, kid? Do you want to go into this or this or this? And on all the lists and forms and things I had to fill out, nothing ever thrilled me, you know, like all the choices of what you could check for for your interests. I I thankfully just had a weird penchant that I knew I wanted to to perform in some way. But it it was very subliminal. And I happened to be at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana because my girlfriend at the time was auditioning for their dance department. And I met these theater students in the hallway. It was completely by random chance. And I learned that one could study theater uh, with the the hopeful pursuit of then being paid to perform in plays professionally in Chicago. All of this was like... the the land of Oz to me. I, I had no idea people were paid to be in a play in Chicago or that, that plays were performed in Chicago. Um, but that just was a, a complete epiphany. And um, it was, it was in that moment that I said, Oh, I can get paid to be in plays and I can get there from here. Okay. That's what I'm going to do. You mentioned a couple of times in the book, um, mm-hmm in your early college years being really into this thing called the church of the subgenius which i thought was just such a perfect alternative <laughs> culture from 1989 uh thing for a college freshman to be in it's a sort of combination of a religion and a parody of a religion that yeah it it came to me it was one of those things actually my my friends that i met that eventually we we formed the spine of of uh our company, the Defiant Theater in Chicago. These guys were, all, interestingly, they were also from these even more rural Illinois towns, McLeansboro, Monmouth, um, Peoria. But but they, through either older siblings or through by virtue of being in a college town, had come into these, these sort of alternative uh, culture items. And one of them was the Church of the Subgenius. And it's it's just – it's based out of Dallas um, and it's this incredibly hilarious satirical religion. But for we young weirdos like sort of banding together in our nonconformity, you know, searching for uh, an identity, 
it was the perfect banner for us to unfurl and say we're funny and weird and we you know we love making fun of organized religion among other things um and uh it it really it bound us together some of the slogans of the church of the subgenius are weird men arise uh give me food or give me slack or kill me and it, it it's basically breaking down you know western religion into uh purportedly its um its simplest form of if you adhere to this set of rules it, we will get you sex and get you money <laughs> <laughs> which is re- what everybody wants really when they go to church when you left college and entered a world you know a theater world in chicago that was full of people who had um you know, dedicated their lives to being artistic and alternative and sophisticated and all of that other stuff. Did you feel there was something different about how you saw the world because of where you grew up, despite the fact that everyone had sort of come to the same place? Certainly. Um, yeah. I mean, even uh, most importantly, I still really felt the difference of my uh, my relative ignorance. And it was as I began to see myself in the pool of like young, uh, you know, athletic uh, white guys when, when I saw the people I was auditioning against. That's when I first began to cotton to the fact that it wasn't all bad, that I was – that I had a touch of the farm boy about me or the – that I, that I was a little bit countrified because um, I could, you know, I could shave and clean up and, and pretend to be a lawyer as – as much as the next guy, but I had perhaps something, a certain dirt under my fingernails that none of these guys could could um, convincingly achieve. I'll continue my conversation with Nick Offerman after a break, and he'll talk about a surprising talent. I took two semesters of ballet. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is supported in part by Warby Parker, a new concept in eyewear. Warby Parker offers prescription eyeglasses starting at $95 with free shipping, free returns, and a free home try-on program. Plus, for every pair of glasses sold, another pair is distributed to someone in need. Online at warbyparker.com slash bullseye. Hi, this is Dave Hill from Dave Hill's Podcasting Incident on the Maximum Fun Network. I'm here with my lovely and talented secretary, Ms. Shana Feinberg. Shana, I understand you've been doing a bit of research to find out what listeners think of the show. Yes, I have, Dave. And what have you found? Well, people that love it say they love it because it's just Dave hanging out with someone in his apartment. Awesome. What, what do people that hate it say? They hate it because it's just Dave hanging out with someone in his apartment. Oh. Listen to Dave Hill's podcast dancing on the Maximum Fun Network, motherfucker. Was that too much? No, I think it was perfect. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the actor Nick Offerman. He plays a whiskey-loving, woodworking man's man on the NBC sitcom Parks and Recreation. His new book is called Paddle Your Own Canoe, One Man's Fundamentals for Delicious Living. I read somewhere that um, in the mid-1980s, when you were, uh, I guess, just short of high school um, and... America f- fell in love with the urban sound of hip hop. 
<laughs> and its physical expression in the form of b-boy dancing, um, that you had a two-man b-boy crew in your town. Is this true? Can you confirm or deny? Uh, yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, my cousin and I were just completely enamored of breakdancing. Uh, we were just at the right age. It was 1984, 85, and um, we were 14, 15 years old. We saw the the seminal breakdance films that actually made it to our local theater in Joliet. I don't know. We were athletic. We were young. We were both fresh and fly. <laughs> so we had everything that it took. Um, Did you have a tracksuit? We yes we we definitely had uh, you know we we were not affluent and we didn't um, you know we didn't have the 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 access to run out and purchase any any garment that uh, we saw in a breakdance film so we sort of came up with our best facsimiles like the, are you saying that your grandmother knitted you a tracksuit <laughs> not quite but we we had the Kmart version of you know like if. If the kids in the movies had super cool new Adidas, we would have like the the weird Kmart three stripe sneaker, but you would still pull the tongue out and lace it up with the fat laces. Um, and we had, you know, we 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 had cheap uh, like knockoff parachute pants, and then eventually we uh, we sold sweet corn at a stand. Um, uh, we sold it by the dozen, and we saved our money until we could buy. Some kick-ass parachute pants. <laughs> <laughs> what is what? What constitutes kick-ass parachute pants? Like full chest king? More zippers, yeah. I mean, just just chest king. You know, it was either it was either the the chest king knockoff, which just didn't last. I mean, you you really get what you pay for when it comes to breakdancing attire. Sure. And we we would split seams so readily uh, with with our crappy original pants, but once we Stepped up to the chess king attire, we were we were good to go. Were you just popping and locking, or were you doing floor work as well? We were both doing all of it. Um, I, I I I flatter myself to uh, <laughs> to think that I maybe had um, a, a bit more of panache in the in the body rock, if you will, in the up rock, and my cousin. Uh, Who's also incredibly talented? He he was probably the greatest athlete in our school. Like in our in our age group, he was the best running back. He, he was the fastest and strongest, and so he was um, he was good at at all forms of the of the breakdance. But he was especially skilled at things like flips and and things that are more gymnastic on the floor. And I was kind of happy to let him let him reside in those areas while I thrilled the ladies with the electric pulse running through my torso. Have you tried to do this since you were 15? Sure, I still do. I'm, I'm called upon with some frequency to do popping and locking. Um, <laughs> as we all are. As you can imagine. Uh, I did some on Fallon recently uh, that you can probably find on the computer network. Uh, and I, w I was on an ill-fated show on Comedy Central called American Body Shop. This was maybe six or seven years ago. And uh, one of my co-stars, a really funny guy named Pete Holney, um, 
we discovered we're about the same age and we discovered that we had both had this same, similar phase of, of intense breakdancing in our, as teenagers. And so we convinced the writers to write us uh, a breakdancing episode where we, <laughs> we inexplicably discover in each in one another's past that we have this skill and it somehow turns into a, a face-off, a, a full-on breakdance-off. And we learned in the shooting of that episode that it's really a young man's game. Um, <laughs> this, the story revolved around him throwing his back out and me helping him to heal. But we had to do a lot of breakdancing. And, and so if, if that episode can be discovered, um, you, you'll definitely see some skills. I read somewhere, too, that you were um, or are a ballet enthusiast. Well, that's that's a generous description. Uh, in I frequently, in interviews, get asked about my manliness or my level of machismo. And usually through through the lens of the Internet, people will say to me, in preparation for this interview, I Googled you 15 minutes ago. And I saw a lot of things about that you're very manly or that the that you're being sort of held up as this paragon of, of manliness. And I say to them, I would remind you that I – of my community and my family, I'm the one who went to theater school. I'm an artist. I took two semesters of ballet. Um, it, on the list of, of electives that were required for my, my fine and applied arts, you know um, – degree ballet was the the elective in which i could most readily meet beautiful young ladies um so much so that i went back for a second semester i i enjoy ballet as i do most of the arts but i certainly had no intention of uh, pursuing it i did three years of afro haitian dance it's just because i'm super good at afro haitian dance it stands to reason mm-hmm <laughs> One of the things that um, I enjoyed reading about in your book was, which is, as I, as I mentioned, a sort of partly a, a sort of book of life advice, was in, in describing your own life, you talked about the way that having woodworking and carpentry, you also worked as a carpenter, um, sort of complemented your career as an actor because um, in some way it it was not just a fallback. It was, you know, each was a fallback position from the other in a way and um, both were rewarding different parts of you. Um, and I wonder, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you've kept that up. I mean, you kept it up through when you were making a living as an actor, you were still sometimes working as a carpenter. Um, and, you know, even now you have a wood shop with employees and stuff. Well, yeah, um, I feel that, I don't know, the, the, there was a very, um, there, there was a time a couple years into my, my time in L.A. that I felt like, I, I felt like I was in a crucible of sorts where, I was doing what all the young aspiring actors were doing. I had a commercial agent. I was uh, also had a, a th what you call a theatrical agent. Uh, and, and so I was going out for TV and film jobs. 
but also your commercial agent would just send you out for, you know, toothpaste commercials and what have you. And it, it, it was somehow I defiantly chose to remain a laborer. Um, I, I don't know. There's something about my work as a carpenter that I could feel had a value that that um, that was very different uh, and much more wholesome than these hours I was spending sitting in a waiting room to audition for a Wonder Bread commercial. Well, one is very physical and real. I mean, you can see what you are doing. And the other, not only can you not necessarily see what you're doing, but you have to ask someone permission to do it. You you do. And it's uh, from my family of, of uh, stalwart salt-of-the-earth Americans, uh, out of necessity, I had built scenery professionally throughout my time in Chicago. And so it wasn't a choice at the time. It was, oh, here's a way I can thankfully make my rent while learning to to be a better actor in these plays. Um, But then when I got to L.A. and began to make more of a living as an actor, I felt the need sort of in order to remain a member of my family uh, or to remain wholly myself, that I had to keep doing something with my hands, that I had to keep making things with tools because that's what I – it's part of what I do. Um, and it, the the guy that I'm sending in to audition for the shows, he's partly informed by the guy who makes things with a hammer and a saw. And, and for me personally – it, the timing was such that I got hooked on woodworking. I started making fine furniture and, and then canoes. And at the same time, the world became completely um, saturated with the Internet and with all the of this electronic information. And I don't know. I mean, for me personally, it's, it's as though I inadvertently discovered that I had a, a – a life-saving flotation ring. It's like, oh, I don't need. I don't have to worry about drowning in all of that morass because I have this. I, I'm, I've, mar- I've already been saved in a preemptive move by my wood shop, and so I've drawn it around me now as a as a cloak of invisibility. Um, I I don't feel the need to indulge in all of the the world of what everybody's doing on the internet. Um, because I, I know how much more delicious it is to make things that are tangible and that I can see and feel. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Nick Offerman, is a comic actor. He plays Ron Swanson on NBC's Parks and Recreation. Swanson loves woodworking, whiskey, and small government. Nick Offerman's new book is called Paddle Your Own Canoe, One Man's Fundamentals for Delicious Living. I wonder what it's like when it's so, such a central part of who you are and expressing who you are, um, you know, to be of the family that you're from, the place that you're from in this world of uh, Los Angeles and the Internet. To both be that person and portray on a hit television program a funny caricature of that person. Yeah. You know, like a mustache walking around on a stake. Yeah. Like a really funny caricature of that person. Do not get me wrong. It's one of the funniest characters on television. Well, th- thanks. It, it's it's strange. I mean, you know, the p- 
probably the greatest fortune in my story, as it were, is simply being in the right place at the right time uh, for, for Mike Schur and Greg Daniels and their team of genius writers. You know, I'm quick to every chance I get, especially when I'm talking about my family, I, I always point out, you know, they're they are, in my opinion, much more heroic Americans than me. I, I am a black sheep. I, I went to theater school. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that there's a medicinal quality to what I do. I think I am a, I think that my life choices are founded in decency, even though, even though they were a little more risque, like, well, I'd, I'd like to do good for people, but I'd also like to drink a lot of beer. How can, you know, what job lets me do that? And I found, you know, in, in the service of Dionysus, one can deliver medicine to people while engaging in, in perhaps a lot of kissing and, and intoxication. And, and, it, and it's a deal. Like everyone shakes hands like, OK, we understand you. You dress up funny and, and make us laugh and cry. It's OK if you show up to the DMV maybe after smoking a joint. That's the deal we've made. And I'm OK with that. But when it, you know when people say to ex, try to extrapolate from Ron Swanson some sort of opinion of my own citizenship or my my own stature as an American, I say, well, look at my family. They're school teachers, they're nurses, they're librarians, they're farmers. They're you know <laughs> this nation or or look at just woodworkers. You know when people. When I do my humorous show for a live audience and I start to talk about woodworking, the audience always applauds. And I say, thank you for applauding the fact that I make a table. But I want to tell you something. Find the people in your community that aren't on a TV show that just make stuff. Go to their shop and applaud for them and buy their knit caps and tables and all the things they're making and, you know, the blacksmith and the glass blower or, or just the chef or the musician, all the people that are using their creativity solely to make a meager living. Because unless you're, you roll into some sort of Justin Bieber situation, you're not going to get rich playing music for people, but you can experience a delicious, rich life. So I, you know, when, when, when people sort of have an overblown sense of who I am or what I'm about, I say, well, no, I'm just really lucky. <laughs> but it, take take that adulation and there's, I'm, I guarantee you there's somebody within 10 miles of your house that will make you a belt that'll blow your mind that's way cooler than anything I've ever made because that's all they do. I, on the other hand, I'm an entertainer. I'm, I'm a clown first. And if I am lucky enough to make a few good belts in my day, great. But if if you if you're looking for a good belt, don't make me your first stop. Go to a belt maker. <laughs> Nick, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. Oh, it's my pleasure. I I never dreamed I would get to speak into a microphone of this quality. <laughs> we have really good microphones. I really I'm a big fan of uh, of NPR and PRI in general, and so it's a great privilege to be here. I thank you. Thank you, Nick. Nick Offerman is the star of one of the funny, one of the stars of one of the funniest shows on television, Parks and Recreation, which is back this fall on NBC. He also has a new book called "Paddle Your Own Canoe: One Man's Fundamentals for Delicious Living."
Here at Bullseye, we consider it our duty to check in every week with the authorities on pop culture to find out what's worth your time. This week, we're talking to Linda Holmes and Glenn Weldon of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. Linda, Glenn, how are you guys doing? Oh, Very we're good. well. I'm happy to have you on the show. Welcome. Uh, Linda, let's talk first about your pick, 12 Years a Slave. Uh, this is a, a slave story based on uh, the real-life autobiography of a slave named Solomon Northrup. Uh, his character is played by Chiwetel Ejiofor, a brilliant and amazing actor. Days ago, I was with my family in my home. Now you tell me all is lost. Tell no one who I am. That's the way to survive. Well, I don't want to survive. I want to live. There have been a number of slave narrative films recently. Where do you see this fitting into that? Well, the good thing about this movie is that it is a movie about slavery that manages to mostly be about slaves. It manages to mostly be about black people. There's a long history of Hollywood movies about slavery that are largely about white people. Uh, So that's very important. And I think the fact that the interesting thing about Solomon Northrup is he was a free black man in New York and was kidnapped into slavery. So while it's still a slave's perspective on slavery, you also get the the shock of a person who's been living as a free person and then goes into this other system. The film is also directed by Steve McQueen, who is uh, an African-American guy. And it is nice to hear to see Hollywood telling a civil rights story uh, from a black perspective (laughs) rather than from the perspective of of white people changing their minds and or saving black people. Exactly. And Steve McQueen is actually British. So you get uh, he's actually not even you know, not only is he a black guy, but he's a black guy who's not even American. So he does bring an interesting kind of perspective to the story. But aside from one brief Brad Pitt cameo that I wish that they had been able to restrain themselves from, it really is mostly just a very intense and and um, very, I keep wanting to say important, and you, it's not the Hollywood bad kind of important. It's a really helpful kind of important to add to, the, to our, our, our sort of body of slave narratives. Glenn Weldon, your recommendation is a new comic called Sex Criminals, which is by Matt Fraction and Chip Zdarsky. Um, so Matt Fraction has been writing this great uh, series called Hawkeye for Marvel, uh-huh. which is um, which is different from the typical superhero comic book. I, I read it and, and really enjoyed it. Um, maybe you can describe a little bit what, what makes his writing distinctive. In terms of his superhero work, which he's done a hell of a lot of, uh, he always locates the humane inside the spandex. He, he locates the human. He locates the, the real. Uh, and, of course, um, of course, Hawkeye is a book that's only in, in name about superheroes. It's really about a guy who can't help but do the right thing however it, it happens, however he happens to come across it. He's also very funny. That helps a great deal. So with this new book, Sex Criminals, it has a very high concept that has nothing to do with doing the right thing. Tell me what that is. All right. Yeah. So if you if you haven't been stopped by the name Sex Criminals, you might be stopped by the plot, which is that a young woman discovers that when she has sex, she stops time, literally stops time. She meets a guy with the same ability and they proceed to copulate and rob banks with that stopped time so that they can save a library from foreclosure. So 
it's a classic <laughs> Aristotelian <laughs> plot, just updated. So this book is all about. I'm pretty about... sure that's ju- you're just describing the plot of Breaking Two. <laughs> that's right. It's a, there's a there's a community center involved. No, uh, so the the plot. Let's go. Let's let's be honest. Pretty dumb. This book is all about the execution. Uh, this is being touted by the creators as a sex comedy, and certainly it's, there's a lot of sex, and it's very very funny. But it's not the kind of gross exploitative comedy that I associate anyway with with contemporary sex comedies. This book is a book about sex for and about grown-ups. Its approach to the topic is mature, but not in the modern sense of mature is not for children, but mature is in nuanced. It is a very clear-eyed, frank approach to sexuality because it is essentially a coming-of-age tale. It knows that puberty is a pretty terrifying thing. So as we follow this girl's development, we see uh, it depicting her being terrified of this, this thing that's happening to her and then gradually experiencing that terror uh, acknowledging it, embracing it. Uh, so this book is about s- how sex can bring people together, but the whole metaphor of her being able to stop time is about uh, how it also puts up barriers. That So this book is really a sex comedy that's really about intimacy in a really basic way. Now, would I read this book on the bus? Would I read a book called Sex Criminals on the Bus? <laughs> Probably not. There are boobs, there are butts, you see some junk occasionally, but Ultimately, this is a, I keep coming back to this word, humane. It is a smart, funny, humane book that's off to a hell of a start. Glenn Weldon recommends the new comic Sex Criminals from writer Matt Fraction and artist Chip Zdarsky. And Linda Holmes recommends 12 Years a Slave, starring Chiwetel Ejiofor, directed by Steve McQueen. You can catch Linda and Glenn, by the way, on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast for free in your iTunes or whatever. Um, Glenn, Linda, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Brandon Bird is a painter. I'll describe one of his oil paintings for you. Christopher Walken, the actor, is in a garage. He's wearing a sort of slightly blousy denim shirt. He's got a soldering iron in his hand, and he's, well, he's building a robot. Basically, the paintings I make are about humor. You know, they're, they're, they're about getting that sort of, like, elation that comes from seeing and experiencing a joke. Wait, what? What? What am I looking at? Oh, my God. What? We're debuting a new segment on the show today. Brandon is going to tell us about the day he became an artist. Brandon makes a living as an artist these days, but he's always been artistic, even when he was four years old. My mom sort of entered the uh, living room, I guess, which had a big glass door that led out into the backyard. And she saw me drawing all over the glass surface with a block of cheese, as though it was a big crayon (laughs) or, like, oil stick, just making big swirls and stuff. I was like, what are you doing? You can't do that. And apparently my response was to turn to her and say, but mom, art is my life. Brandon continued to draw in school and at home. He was good, too. He could render Batman perfectly in black and white. He was missing something. Direction, maybe? I would do these paintings that were sort of like, like, it'd be like Mr. T or like a Transformer or, you know, like pop culture stuff. But it was in a kind of flat, comic booky, you know, black lines and color field style. You know, I knew, like, what do I'm like, this is just like fan art. 
And it was because I didn't, I didn't know how paint worked. So I was like, how do these people do this? Like, how do you make this, you know, great color gradation on like some dude's cheek? Like, was what? What is the magic I am missing? What is this alchemy that is just eluding me? Brandon looked at art schools for college, but they were really intimidating. He loved drawing, but he didn't know what to do with it career-wise. That made him nervous. He got offered a scholarship to UC Santa Cruz, so he took the conventional college route. And, you know, I entered this intro to oil painting class. And the teacher was Frank Galuska, and they were just like, here's how paint works. Like, this is oil paint. You can change the viscosity, you can change the, you know how fast it's going to take to dry. You can make it thicker, you can make it thinner. And it's just like, oh, wow, I can make choices now, like informed artistic choices. And the first assignment out the gate was like, pick an old masterwork, copy it. And (laughs) so, of course, my reaction was, well, if I could copy like an old masterwork, I could make a painting in the style of old masterwork and like stick Mr. T in there. And so he did that. He painted a takeoff of Caravaggio's Allegory of the Elements. Caravaggio's painting, if you haven't seen it, you don't remember it, has three deities, Neptune, Jupiter, and Pluto, with Cerberus, the three-headed dog. Pluto is nude, and his gentleman parts are on display, quite prominently. Brandon's version is called Tartarus. Pluto's still naked, sitting with Cerberus in a field of roiling storm clouds. But lower left is a cartoon Mr. T, striding confidently towards Pluto's junk. Brandon says that set him free, creatively speaking. And I actually felt like, oh wait, this is new, this is exciting to me. This I can still paint silly things that I like, but in a way that is... It's not just like, I painted this Transformer because I like Transformers. But in a way that's like, hey, I did not expect to see a Transformer there. When I was in high school, I basically made pretty well done, crappy fan art. And now, I'm still painting things like Batman. But it's no longer about Batman. It's about sort of taking Batman or a Mr. T figure or an Edward Norton figure, or any cast member from Law & Order. You know, just sort of pulling them out of the ether and sticking them in a new situation that's not expected. And so hopefully it's not something that's just about the character or the pop culture thing, but it's using that stuff to sort of tell a very elaborate joke. Oh, that, wow, I didn't... <laughs> That's Brandon Bird on the day he became an artist. His new activity book, Brandon Bird's Astonishing World of Art, features Law & Order SVU Valentines, a page where you can draw hair on Nicolas Cage, and a painting of Peter Dinklage as Wolverine, among many other things. You can find him at brandonbird.com. What if you wound up making a television show with your all-time number one hero? I'll talk about that with a few members of the sketch group The Birthday Boys after a break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This is Jesse Thorne, proprietor of MaximumFun.org and host of International Waters. 
International Waters pits a team of comedians in London against a team of comedians here in L.A. over several rounds of very stupid pop culture questions and games. We've got Paul F. Tompkins, Josie Long, Greg Proops, Claudio Doherty, Robin Ince, Andy Zaltzman, Paul Shear, Izzy Sooty, Ricky Carmona, Cameron Esposito, Aaron Gibson, Brian Safi. So join me and the best comedians in the English-speaking world for International Waters. Go to MaximumFun.org or look for us in the iTunes store. Bullseye's on Twitter. Follow us online at twitter.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's kind of a challenge to describe the sketch comedy group The Birthday Boys. They're irrepressibly warm, silly, sometimes dumb, idiotic, rarely profane, almost never topical. They're not so much a satire of American society as a sort of through-the-looking-glass tribute to it. They write about pies on windowsills, for goodness sake. Basically, there's seven goofs goofing. But that's not to say that they're not sophisticated or funny. They are. Funny enough that the guy behind every comedy nerd's personal lodestar, Bob Odenkirk, has joined forces with them. Odenkirk brings the credibility of his Mr. Show roots and his Breaking Bad present to the Birthday Boys new show on IFC. Here's a bit of a sketch from episode two of that show. A group of guys is hanging out in a bar talking about ladies, and sharing a big, cool pitcher of water. Prime example, I actually have a thing for the buttocks. So what is it about that part that uh, just catches your eye? Or yeah, Sometimes, yeah, but I know, the buttocks, right? But yeah, the buttocks for me. No, actually, I get it. It can be kind of arousing in a way. That's a great way of putting it. What? That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Oh. And especially if it's, well... I shouldn't say it. It's kind of weird. Come on, yeah, say yeah, it. Yeah. Go on. Well, if it's fit, you know, sort of substantial, but like shapely. Oh, yeah. uh, what am I saying? I don't know. No, 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 no. It's okay. You know, I think you need to be honest with yourself. Right? Yeah. 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 Hey, I got my own quirks. I mean, if I see a woman with a symmetrical face, eyes, nose, mouth, etc. Right, right. If she has like nice skin and a proportional body. Like the classical idea of beauty. Exactly. If she fits the classical idea of beauty, it just... Uh, I'm just trying to picture this, though, oh, so... Uh, wait, 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 I gotta say this, and I've wanted to say it my whole life. If she's not wearing clothing, you know, like no cloth or covering, or, or she is wearing clothing or cloth, but there's a suggestion that maybe it might fall off, I just... I tune in again. I switch it on. No, yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah. But what if she's got a great personality, you know, share some of your interests and goals? And she's loyal, you know, but she's not overbearing. When I meet a woman like that, it's like, hey, what do I know? Count me in, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Three of the birthday boys are in the studio with me now. Jeff Dutton, Tim Kalpakis, and Chris Van Artsdale. And hey, guys, welcome to the show. How's it going? Hey, thanks, thanks for, for having us. us. It is great to have you on the program. So I know that many of you guys are college buddies. Mm-hmm. Um, are all? Did all three of you guys go to school together? Yeah. Yeah. Did you know each other in college? We, we did. did. We, we were pals. We weren't, like, working on stuff together. Did you guys make any films together? We helped each other with some films. Yeah. Uh, we all went to Ithaca College, and Jeff and I were cinema production majors, and Tim, you were, what, TV? TV? Yeah. So we were. We go back to freshman year. Yeah, Chris and I do. And uh, Tim, I met 
mostly in the LA semester, right? Hanging That's around when we, when we first mm-hmm. like hung out. So you, about a year after moving to Los Angeles, uh, started taking classes and performing at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Um, what did you learn there at the very beginning, and what did it sort of represent to you then? I think there is a main thing you learn, like literally in the classes. They talk about a concept called game, where it's like finding the core of the funny idea that's in a sketch and zeroing in on that and eliminating everything else. And then once you figure that out, finding how to repeat it by heightening it and exploring. So I think like technically that was the thing that we were like learning. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it was just a fun place where you'd go and pay $5 or $0 and see cool people doing comedy. We saw Prank the Dean. <laughs> My sketch comedy group, yes. Yeah. We saw yes, guilty as charged. I was at the show when you guys dumped water all over the stage and oh. everybody yelled at you. Oh, thirsty, <laughs> thirsty president. president. I remember <laughs> that. Yep. I was there. I like that sketch, but I feel like I, they really tore into you guys. They for... really did. That We checked in with them. It was a sketch about how thirsty the president was. Uh-huh. And we checked in with them. We told them this is a sketch about us dumping water on each other for no particular <laughs> – like the premise is the, the, the president's thirsty and he keeps wanting more and more. <laughs> <laughs> because he's the president. And we're like, there's going to be a lot of water. And they said, no problem. And then when we did it, they got so angry at right. us on stage and like ripped us a new one from the stage. And it was a competition type show. So it wasn't the type of show where you would want everyone to get mad at you. And they just, you had to mop it up slowly. Like, well, the show, well, the show. <laughs> well, the show. we had to mop it up while they were talking about what jerks we were. Oh, for them. Yeah. We, we had checked with them. Well, we should explain, though, you guys didn't just pour like a water bottle. This was like, no, like a 10 gallon buckets it, of water. It was like a big, it, yeah, it was huge. It was tons of water. So you were inspired by our vision, yes. Yeah. 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 We got into comedy because of Thirsty President. Uh-huh. And we're like, what else can you do? <laughs> <laughs> but there, there, was a, there was a very, and to some extent still is, a very particular voice of the Upright Citizens Brigade sketch comedy group. And I know that... Um, the uh, comedy writers and performers Neil Campbell and Paul Rust, who at the time were performing as Neil and Paul, were an important part of your growth as a comedy group. Maybe you could describe what that was sort of what that aesthetic was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, early on, Neil and Paul were hosting uh, the open mic sketch show, Not Too Shabby. And we did tons of uh tons of sketches for that and they basically took us under their wing and kind of showed us the ropes after that and their comedy at that point i mean they're still like this now but when they were doing neil and paul sketches on friday nights at ucb it was just the silliest stupidest silliest stuff you could imagine almost like part of the joke a lot of the time was that this premise is not worthy of being on a stage with viewers watching it, but then committing to that for 12 minutes. Um, and it was some of the funny, I mean, that was the, as much as I've ever been into a comedy thing, you know, like Conan or Mr. Show, I feel like we geeked out on Neil and Paul. Yeah. These um, weird sketches they did at one o'clock in the morning on Friday night. Cause they were so stupid. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably the hardest I've laughed in a decade has got to be at Neil and Paul. Just, screwing around on stage. The thing that I remember uh, thinking about the two of them performing together was that when we started performing in Los Angeles, I was always annoyed at people trying to be too cool for school and and so sort of half removing themselves from their commitment to sketches uh, in order to protect themselves from those sketches failing and sort of being a little bit arch in that way. Mm-hmm. And what Neil and Paul brought to the stage was this pure sweetness and 
absolute 1,000% commitment to everything that they did. I mean, it's totally self-aware, but just complete silliness that was, you know, full Pee Wee Herman level <laughs> yeah. silliness. Absolutely. I think that's the thing that is always a huge turnoff for me. I, f- I feel like if you see somebody bailing on a bit because, you know, if, if if something's not going well and then they decide they're, they're too cool for it, even at UCB, we'd see a lot of people bailing on things or never even starting out with committing. But, yeah, Neil and Paul is 1,000%. And, I mean, just last Wednesday we saw Paul rust to a sketch that was bombing so hard <laughs> at UCB. And uh, and he just got bigger and bigger and bigger and just, like, forced the audience to like it. And then by the end of the, the sketch, it was the darling of the night. But it was – And, of course, we were all there just dying. Like, yeah, I was yeah. laughing my head off. It's that's something that's so hard when you uh, I guess our sort of brand is to commit very, you know, really 100 percent commit to the sketches. And then when they don't go well, you just uh, you just got to ride it down. (laughs) (laughs) Just ride it out. This is Bullseye and I'm your host, Jesse Thorne. My guests are Tim Kalpakis, Chris Van Artstalen and Jeff Dutton. They're members of the sketch comedy group The Birthday Boys. Their new TV show starts up this month on IFC. The show's executive producers include Bob Odenkirk and Ben Stiller. Odenkirk also appears on the show. So essentially, each one of the episodes of the program has a, a running uh, a running sketch that runs throughout the whole thing. Often um, mm-hmm. ends up being you know ten or twelve minutes of comedy. And in this episode, which is the second episode, it's something called Goofy Roofers. Um, they start as a group of Goofy Roofers. Roofing and goofing um, on top of a roof. <laughs> yes. Okay. Sounds good. We Sounds like, like a children's book so far. But um, Bob Odenkirk's character calls the television network, tells them that he doesn't like what's on TV, but he loves these roofers on his roof. And they get a television show, and this is the television show that they get. And the sound that sounds like uh, roofers being electrocuted in this clip is roofers being electrocuted. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, our dates will be here any minute. Yeah. Hey, what's this? Uh, stay focused, guys. Our dates will be here any minute. Yeah. Hey, what are these? Hey, keep a dot out there. Sorry, Mr. Villanueva. Sorry, Mr. Villanueva. Well, sorry, don't buy the moose. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. Wow. <laughs> Clearly, we should be be making a sitcom. <laughs> I mean, that was great. One of the things, what I like about that sketch is that it, you know, I, I think it is. Um, it can be easy to be cool by being satirical and uh, tearing down things like sitcoms. But there's something very sweet and sort of fond about the form in that terrible dumb version of a sitcom like it's not it's not even the version of a sitcom that Mr. Show would have done you know 15 years ago I'm happy to hear you say that because we I don't know about you guys but I didn't I never thought of that bit as like a tear down a tear down of sitcoms and if we were to tear down sitcoms that has been done so well for for decades so I think it was 
you know, the idea of that bit was becoming more about how stupid we are. And that that sitcom was meant to be kind of like the ultimate version of what we think our show is, because we are (laughs) seven idiots goofing in a lot of sketches. and, And we, you know, whenever somebody pitches an idea for a thing where it's like, well, there's seven idiots and we do like. We already like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of the time we just start with something that we actually love, whether it's documentary or sitcom or whatever, and then we just imagine what if uh, seven morons were doing that thing. (laughs) Yeah, and there there is part. (laughs) That's it's satire. Is that's what the definition of satire. Your show is executive produced by Bob Odenkirk, and he helped uh, write the show and, and is featured in the episodes. Um, what did his show, Mr. Show, mean to you when you guys were, you know, in college when it came out on DVD? It, I think that I could not exaggerate how much I, how I like that show. I feel like, you know, you overuse the term like, oh, that changed my life. But I literally when Mr. Show season one and two came out on DVD, my roommate Cliff got it. I watched it and I changed my major from like a generic media thing to television <laughs> writing based on season one and two of Mr. Show. I thought you would have been great at media studies. <laughs> you should have, <laughs> yep. you should have stuck I know. with it. I regret it. It's one of those shows, a lot like my favorite shows, where it took me an episode or two to like recalibrate and and hear the voice of the makers as strongly as, as they see. It's not like everything else. You really do have to sort of like realign and take it in in a different way the same way that like the british office after the first episode i was like okay and i watched the next one and then slowly it was like wow this thing is one of the greatest things that can be watched (laughs) yeah mr show best sketch show ever i mean it's it's the only sketch show for me that you can watch beginning to end and enjoy 99 percent of it whereas with say SNL or something, I feel like the percentage has always been way lower than that. It's like the know? nature of sketch, yeah. Yeah, but we also wanted to do like a an, a totally immersive, uh, you know, twenty two minute episode and have that be a rewarding experience front to back, and not just be something that could be chopped up into essentially YouTube videos. Tell me about what it was like when. Uh, Bob Odenkirk, the creator of Mr. Show, uh, the the or co-creator of Mr. Show, the, you know, alternative comedy god of the last 20 years said he wanted to have a meeting with you in his office. Uh, Tim, you want to go for that one? <laughs> it was awesome. It was really, because I, I, I was in the meeting, the first one before we all went in, but it was great. I think we were immediately, because of low self-esteem, assumed it was something else, you know, that it was like, oh, he's not going to want to actually work with us or did you think he was bringing you in there for a dressing down (laughs) (laughs) yeah just to tell me to stop doing comedy um i had i had seriously no expectation and it was me and mike hanford that first went in and like sat in bob's office and met with him and talked about comedy and it was this kind of thing where it was like we didn't i didn't want to ruin it by asking him what his intentions were you know so i just kept talking about sketches that i liked or goofing around about uh uh, some ideas, and we just kind of like let it roll until he said it, maybe it was a, a TV project, and we were so super happy, and that happiness has ridden us through a year of <laughs> making the TV show. I think we're still so so happy about it. We wrote so many plots on our show about people getting TV shows because we're happy to have <laughs> one. Yeah. Yeah. We were so happy about that fact. Uh, but it also uh, before the TV show notion ever came up, we did live. Uh, we did two hour longs with him at the Steve Allen Theater, and that was sort of like the 
uh, developing process of like how do we work together and it we sort of slowly discovered that he's a really good foil to like a group of seven idiots if you need a guy who's like a a judge or a general or <laughs> or somebody somebody who can be senior to uh, like a group of dummies it's a really nice setup he's a very serious guy about comedy. I remember the first time that he was a guest on my show many years ago. I mean, it may have even have been for a Mr. Show live tour or something like that. Um, I remember him telling me all about why he wanted the sets on Mr. Show to be flimsy mm-hmm. and not solid. Mm-hmm. That was really important to him, and he had a complex rationale for that. He's a man who's thought about his comedy um, what is it like to be in a writer's room with him? It's great because we have that same attention span to talk about a thing like the sets forever. Or I think <laughs> when you do when you do a bizarre, wacky, silly sketch show like ours, you're kind of agreeing, hey, we're all going to put a lot of thought into something that a huge portion of the public will just think is very silly and write it off. But I think it's it's just because we like comedy and we like to dissect it. So he engages us in a million of those conversations and we engage him because it's fun to spend a whole afternoon talking about a wig. Were you surprised when Bob Odenkirk said, let's pitch a television show, that his idea for pitching a television show was that he would write it with you and be in it rather than just attach his name to it and introduce you to a celebrity friend of his? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we were he, – he has explained to us that uh, – and the way he, he words it is there's something broken in him. <laughs> and uh, I don't think of it as broken, but he says – he'll say there's something broken in me where I can only work on, on things I really believe in and I like to work on them to the extent that is rewarding for me. So I think with our show, because – Honestly, we started off as such huge Mr. Show fans. We developed a voice that is different from Mr. Show, but there's common ground, and he was having fun writing. You know, I think there could have been a world where he just stepped back and let us do all the writing or let us do all the directing, but we liked having him there, and he's really amazing at it, and he was just having fun. It's, it's, we came along at a good time, too, where he's shooting Breaking Bad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's <laughs> nice. Timing's amazing. It's nice when everybody's trying to get a piece of him, and he honestly does want to be in the edit bay with us. Like, yeah, yeah. It's pretty insane. And, um, you know, in the writer's room, he, I think he saw that we were similar in a way, but he still, not that he wanted to make us something that we weren't, but... He saw what he could bring to a group like ours, like the the sort of Rick Rubin factor of you guys should do what you do, but try and be relevant, not in a way that's topical, but in a way that when everything is fully fleshed out, people can identify with it in a way that's deeper than just like a, a silly sketch character that you never really feel anything. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was, it was really fun to get to talk to you, and congratulations on your really fun new show. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Jesse. Jeff Dutton, Chris Van Artsdalen, and Tim Kalpakis are among the members of the Birthday Boys. They've got a brand-new television program on IFC. like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. What I'm about to say is a little odd, but you'll have to bear with me on it. 
I think Michael Palin may be everything good about British colonialism. Now, I don't mean this as an endorsement of colonialism. So, all you culture studies majors, please sheathe your swords. I guess I just mean it as an endorsement of Michael Palin. If you don't know, Palin spent the 70s as one of the cast members of Monty Python, maybe the greatest comedy group of the 20th century. In the 80s, he was in movies and so on. Over the past 20 years or so, he's done a bit of that, but he's mostly made travel specials. The ferry to Alexandria leaves in the evening, so I've time to see a little more of Venice than the chimneys opposite my room. And early in the morning, and out of season, is the perfect time. These travel specials, they are the Englishest thing you have ever seen. Full-on, double-decker bus stuff, brown sauce on a TV screen, Earl Grey in video form. And it's largely because of Palin. Seriously, there is not a country in the world where Michael Palin can't find a private club, a British expat, and a cup of tea. You can take as long as you want. Whoops. <laughs> the man wears safari clothes without irony. There are times when you think he might actually be like an agent of the Raj or the Mongolia representative of the East India Company. Put a pith helmet on his head and you'd be basically completely convinced. The Out of Africa Breakfast. Uh, coffee, please. Yes. Coffee and croissants on the top of the Ololo Escarpment, where Robert Redford was once buried. Anyway, as he sits in these gardens, sipping from China in his linen trousers, it all seems to a contemporary American, to an anti-colonialist, like some kind of crazy time warp. And if you know your history, it's a time warp to a time when power in the world was far from just. And... Britain was taking the lead in the unjustness department. Michael Palin wants to expand horizons, but he's not out to make sure that the sun never sets on the British Empire. He's not telling people how to live their lives or that their God doesn't exist or what civilization really is. He listens. He laughs. He dances. Awkwardly, but, you know, enthusiastically. If he suffers, and he's basically an old man, he's traveling in steerage a lot of the time, he never shows it. Stiff upper lip and all that. And he talks to people, asks them about their lives without a hint of patronizing. In English or in French or with a translator or just mimes it out if he has to. He must have prayed. Yes. Did he pray? Yes. Of course. <laughs> well, your prayers were answered because you're, you're still here, but it was... And when all else fails, when he's trying to connect, he does a bit. For a little kid in a donkey cart or a group of old men playing dominoes or while he's sharing some camel meat with some tribesmen in the Serengeti or whatever. He's the most lovely kind of clown, just trying to use what he has to reach out. Anyway, that's all from Ironing Corner. We'll be back with a bit of flower arranging tomorrow. And you want to see where I'll be arranging them. Not your normal way. That's enough. Cut away. With very little agenda, Palin opens himself up to experiencing the world, and then he shares it with us as well. He doesn't need to impose narrative on the people he meets or the stuff he goes through. He simply shows them to us plainly with a sweet smile and maybe a little joke. He seems like a man who wants to know the world, not as his dominion, but as a friend. And then, if there's time, 
he'll gladly accept a train ride, a cup of tea, and a few biscuits, if it isn't too much trouble. That's my upshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Brian Bolt. Interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast with whatever software you use to download podcasts. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me at jesse at MaximumFun.org or post them in our forum at forum.maximumfun.org. And hey, if you like the show, tell a friend, please. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.